This is Stefan from Studying Pixels, and it's my turn for this month to select a replay episode. I thought about interview conversations that we did a while ago, and that might not have gained the kind of traction that I think they deserve. So I'm bringing back episode 10 from November 28th, 2021, where we spoke with Claudius Kluver about games in the box. This is an interview conversation that we recorded at the Philips University of Marburg. Claudius and I, we were colleagues at the time working at the same faculty together. And he has this super cool PhD project underway about video games in the box, how they got into the box, what that means, and how nowadays they are kind of getting back out of the box. The interview conversation has some super interesting thoughts on the domain of how capitalism pervades video game culture. And I hope you enjoy it just as much as I did having that conversation. So here's Games in the Box with Claudius Kluver. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Our main story today is about games in the box, specifically about how games got into a box. So like, you know, a physical, proper physical box and how they made their way back out. In order to go into this, we are now joined by Claudius Kluver. He is a good colleague of mine, a research fellow at the Institute of Media Studies at Philips University Marburg. He's also a member at Games Co-op, as well as the AG Games of the German Society for Media Studies. And he's currently working on his PhD project with the working title, The History of Games as Wares. Hi, Claudius. Hi, Stefan. You're engaging with a subject for your PhD, which is quite a commitment. You're engaging with this for a couple of years, for several years. What brought this specific topic on games in a box or games as a ware? Well, um, I was like looking at all sorts of different areas, what I could do. I was interested in analog games. I was um, interested in the body and embodiment in games, stuff like and and not um, like representation of bodies in games, but what what does the body do while we're gaming, like pressing buttons and stuff like that. So that was uh, generally the um, the area, and maybe you you can also see how that ties in together. Like like analog games are very physical. You you're interacting with dice and with with things. And I was researching around that topic and, and searching for something that w- that would be worthwhile. And 
it's not only a long commitment, but um, a PhD is, thesis is also in a way very short. You need something that you can like press in maybe 300 pages. So I was um, searching for something that had had clear boundaries. And at some point, I realized that there, there was a book that I wanted to cite. This book didn't exist, so I decided to write it myself. Ah, oh, that's a beautiful <laughs> way to start off a PhD. It's like, I'm going to write that book. Yeah, yeah. And now you're writing a book about how games evolve from being, well, not in a box to being basically boxed in in a form of a wear to then again leaving the domain of the box. And yes. Maybe we could go through these steps briefly. But because my first thought was that when I was a child, I used to play a lot of, you know, hide and seek, for example, or soccer somewhere in the village, near the village on a field. And I realized if we not only focus on video games, but games in general, and there are a lot of games that actually do not come in a box. Yeah, and I mean, something like like uh, Tag or, or children's games, um, you couldn't possibly really box them in any way. But even games that we are very used to today to get like in a box, we, we're going to a game store and we carry a box home and it may be an analog game like Settlers of Catan or, or Monopoly or something, or maybe a, even a digital game where we were very used to buying computer games in a box. And those, like like these board games, they haven't always been in, in boxes in the sense that we're thinking about it today. Let's get back to the children's games. They primarily exist as, as rules. And these rules are traditionally transmitted like someone tells someone else the the rules or we observe someone playing the game we join in something like that or maybe we buy a book with the rules and this was also for a long time the case with with board games or card games like you had the material and you would buy these materials and most of the time they wouldn't come in boxes in past times because like what we have today, like cardboard boxes, that's a relatively new invention. That's, that's industry at work. Maybe you had like um, wooden boxes. Like which, a chessboard. Yes, like a chessboard. But they're not, wooden boxes are not produced to uh, look good in a store's shelf, but they are sturdy. They are there to last the, the test of time. They're more, more like furniture, basically. So they have been boxes, but they are different boxes, basically. And what the games in uh, older times had in common is that the rules weren't in the box. The rules were a different story altogether. So you would have a chess set, you would have a deck of cards. Other way around, you would have a book with chess tactics, with chess openings, and you would go out and buy a chess set to use the book. Or you would know someone who knew like poker and they wanted to teach you, so you go, went out and Bought cards, so the material and the rules were transmitted or traded separately, and that also kind of makes them flexible, right? Yes. Because if I think about chess, is something that I think my parents explained to me, and then many years later, a friend explained like a different kind of rule set to me, or like additional rules that you can use that more professional players use. I still suck at chess, by the way, but uh, the thing is that. The rules are fairly flexible because they're being transmitted from maybe generation to generation, but at least from person to person. Yeah, and you mentioned something interesting also. 
these traditional games, these older games, um, those are still traded that way today, like chess. Nobody learns chess just from a book or very, very few people learn chess just from a book. Yeah, they're flexible, but that's modern thinking at work. There's kind of flexible, but kind of not, because they're traditional. And if you're in a traditional society, tradition is very important, and, and you try to not alter the rules as you're taught, you try, you try to repeat the rules that you're taught. Chess also has like a really long-standing, consistent rule set. Yes. Much like shogi and other older, older forms that preceded it. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, and and you mention other forms of chess. When you look around the world, you fi find all kinds of different variants of, of uh, chess pieces. But though those are very stable. And, and the form we know today are is like from the, I think, the 16th century, when it, when it was written, written down. If we move a little bit closer towards video games, I think one way in which games can also be boxed in is with arcades. You know, in arcade systems, in arcade machines, but also in public spaces. So this also feels very distinct to me from what we know later as games you could, you know, purchase in a box of Amazon or get at a video rental store. But it's a public space where you would go. Would you qualify arcade machines as also games in a box already? Well, they're um, kind of a kind of a special case, as like computer games are special case. Anyway, and all of that because computer games enforce the rules by themselves. So you you don't really need a rule book per se. Like older games had like instruction manuals with them. So they looked basically like a board game. You open it up, you have all the play materials and you have the rule book. And of course, they are later. Like I said, they are old games, they are new games. Like the, the cutoff is basically in the 1860s. Anything after that, you have tend to have like the rules within a cardboard box, and the cardboard box is also like designed in a pretty way to look good in a store's shelf, so people would buy it. So it's commodified, and it also looks like a commodity. It looks like cornflakes. It's it's like a box in a shelf. Why did this happen around the 1860s? You say so. I think my mind goes to you know industrialization, urbanization, these dynamics. Is that The reason is that what you're alluding to? Um, yeah, that's a big part of the reason. But also, what I mentioned is um, it's also a little bit more than that, kind of, because um, the first thing that happens with that, and you have these traditional games which then get basically boxed in. You have like a game of goose is a, a very famous example for that. Um, Or like Snakes and Ladders in the US or Ludo, Mensch ärger dich nicht in Germany. Ah, yeah. Now it rings a bell. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, and Ludo and Mensch ärger dich nicht, um, they are older, traditional, based on Pachisi, which is from India. I see. So you take all these traditional games from all over the world, you print a rule book, you put it in a box, you sell it. That's not really what we see when we go in a toy store right now. Right now, um, we're used to every month there are new games and we can go and we, we never get bored. There are always new games and they don't, they aren't like the old traditional games with a new design or, or just some minor variation. They're new design games by game designers. 
So basically, if you distinguish between old and new games, then your distinction is, if I understand it correctly, to say that old games are basically traditional games that are um, commodified in the sense that they are added a rule book, they're added maybe a cover, they're put into a box, they're literally boxed in. Whereas new games is the vast array of video, excuse me, not only video games, but all kinds of games that are being produced and put out there that are not like, don't have this kind of long-standing tradition. Yes, yes, yes. And they also, you get figures like uh, game authors or game designers, like like you get a name on the box who made it. We don't know who thought of chess the first, and, and it doesn't matter. Yeah, chess directed by David Cage or something like that. Yeah, and that's also a thing. Like um, games all of a sudden become like other forms of like media the middle class likes. They, come like, uh, they become like novels or like DVD mo movies on DVDs. Uh, if you uh, today, you can have like this a very prestigious bourgeois bookshelf and like one shelf is just novels, one shelf is movies and the shelf below it is video games, the shelf below it is um, board games. And it looks more or less all the same. It looks the same, yeah. But the interesting thing is also because you mentioned the aesthetics that games have in a bookshelf or in any kind of shelf at home. And I think that also um, brings an affordance with it, the requirement coming up with more visual design elements to conceptualize them differently <clears throat> rather than, you know, there's no box of, you know, hide and seek or chess or card games, like traditional uh, card sets. They all look pretty boring and all the same. Yeah, and um, there are also practical um, reasons for that, like especially with card games. They all look the same so you can easily recognize them. Otherwise, if you had like artists who would like go crazy with the design. The person who would know the deck better would be an advantage. And you mentioned that we have like aesthetics of it. We have always new designs and stuff like that. That's also part of this uh, commodification drive. But um, that's not only industry at work. The industry needs something like that. Because if you just sell everybody who wants a chess set. Yeah, the market is saturated at a certain point. The market is saturated. And then basically what your interest is as a um, board game publisher is you want to sell chess too. Yeah. The chessening. But that doesn't make any sense with traditional games. Like I wanted to make clear with chess too, like chess too or poker too. Nobody wants that. You need a reason to give people new games new games, new games, and new games again. And so the industry looks, basically looks for that, I think mostly unconsciously, but it would be really useful at that point, like 1840s, 1850s for the industry to have like a reason to sell new games to people every month. So from a systems theoretical perspective, this would be the economic system reproducing itself. Yes, yeah, yeah, basically. And there's also a big technological drive because yes. computers are invented and beyond their usefulness in the case of military and the science of labor and so on, mm -hmm. uh, they turn out to be incredible machines to make games. Yes. The fact is that computer games on their own came into existence, but in a world where modern games, like I described them, were designed, mass-produced, and um, educational, thought of as educational at least, they already exist and people are already used to them. 
So, um, and, and when computer games get, get uh, economized, uh, like commodified, that's basically the, the tradition they connect to. They, they have their own industry, but that's, that's basically where the, the tracks go together, basically. And a whole industry of video game development emerges. If we put arcade machines aside, very much centered around uh, selling people video games in boxes, because then it's kind of the default mode that you go to a store and you pick up a video game that has pretty elaborate uh, visual design. I'm talking of the box itself, probably more so than the actual game, right? Because mm -hmm. you needed to you need to stir up people's imagination. The Atari was not able to deliver a graphical quality that would really inspire people, so instead the box art would be very significant. And yes, the, the yes. rules be, the rules become stagnant because they are written in a technological code in an operationalizable code that is then not all not changeable anymore. Yeah, and um, yeah, cases are very important in that whole system because a lot of times the, the games that come out on the home systems are also games that are available in the arcades in better graphics. So, so you you have like the images from the box art in your head, but you also have the images from the arcade in your head. Maybe you have seen a commercial of the game. So there's all this additional imagery that you take to the game that makes the game more interesting. And uh, also in this early times, um, basically the, the computer games industry is a little bit of um, looking for like a place. Like the early video games consoles, they're basically advertised as technology for the home. So basically this is a VCR, this is like like today are um, maybe smart speakers or something. This, this is new, this is uh, technological, this is high tech, you can... And also the, the, the thought of education. You, you, can, you can educate your children for the new technological age or something like that. But it's um, an update for your computer. For your, it's an update for your uh, television set, basically. Basically a home appliance. Yes, a home appliance, yes. And you can buy additional games for it that yeah. come in a box. And the games, they also become, that's what I find most striking, commodified. That means people own these games. It might sound trivial at first, but when I think about it, it strikes me that I would never say I own Hide and Seek uh -huh. uh, or something of that sort. It feels to me like when the when games and video games become something for the home that is in people's homes, something that they purchase and they bring it home, mm -hmm. that also brings them in a very in a possessive relationship to that video game text. Yeah, yeah, and that's true, and, and you see it in, in language. You buy Monopoly, but you buy a chess set. Yeah. You buy, I don't know, Wizard, but you buy a deck of cards. But also, on the other hand, like if you look at the law, it isn't really true, at least for, for like uh, PC games um, since the, at least since the 90s, because what you do is you buy a license to use the game. So this is basically the modern time of digital distribution where we do not have this sense of possession well we might have the sense of possession but it's factually inaccurate and uh, we need to think of it more as licenses or as often as thrown around games as a service we often subscribe to games like subscriptions are also pretty common these days well i do not own fortnite mm -hmm. or uh, i don't know what else there is <laughs> all kinds of other free-to-play games warframe or whatever exists right yeah i don't own these games but i have a subscription and 
In that sense, I can participate in a community that persistently evolves, which again changes the dynamic profoundly, I feel like. Sure, sure. It, it puts the perspective completely off of the angle of saying, like, I am the one who owns this game. Yeah, and, and it's um, kind of a little bit reminiscent of the, the, the traditional times, right? Because it's, it feels a little bit more like tag again or like a children's game. But um, this, at the same time, it gives like the, um, the publisher of uh, Fortnite way more power and way more control about the people and even more control than they had when we bought the games in, in uh, boxes. If you technically imagine you buy, let's say, a Fortnite cartridge for yes. the SNES, imagine they get a D-Make or something of the sort, then this would be a, a material, physical object that I can use and I can do with it whatever I like, including selling it on. Like you can't sell Fortnite on, mm -hmm. as far as I'm aware at least. Or most digital games, indeed, you cannot sell on. So it puts you out of the position of being of being an owner. And as you said, Epic Games, the company that owns Fortnite, they have a profound control as in they can change and alter it over time. A control that no one has over games such as Hide and Seek. Yes. And it's it's totally weird because in all of these steps you have like moves of more control and moves of more liberation. Like we said, With the advent of the modern game, you have a figure like um, game designer. At, at the f for the first time in history, you had um, the idea that you could sit down and invent a new game and people would play it. At the same time, of course, there's a whole giant industry selling people educational games and other games get banned from... Um, from proper society, like, like casino games, gambling, and stuff like that, or everything that's a little bit violent get, gets uh, thrown out of the, the uh, schoolyard. Then you go on today, you have this, okay, we, we are more open, the games are, the computer games now are free to play, you can just download it and start to play, you don't need to buy it up front. Um, but also, that way, the publishers get way more control. And All of a sudden, this this industrial game, this the the power of the publisher gets something. The gamers um, start to defend as something like like the the proper ideal, the platonic ideal of a computer game today is the full price game, like as opposed to paid upgrades, in game purchases, DLCs, or something. Now now we're talking about we we're all. Um, becoming proper like bourgeois uh, novel readers no 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 the the work like the complete work that's the unit we need to defend against all these in-game purchases now we see this especially when publishers or developers produce a let's say remaster or remake of former works and when they make let's say minor changes to these works that they see might be in their interest and people get upset because they have a certain attachment to these original works. But do you see a problem with this idea? Because from what you said, it sounds to me like you, you see it as a problem that publishers and developers have this sort of control, this sort of influence. Yeah, especially because um, games are really culturally important and socially important. Like, People meet each other online. Um, they are in Animal, animal Crossing, uh, New Horizons, um, during the pandemic, people 
had funeral services that they uh, couldn't do physically because of um, pandemic restrictions. Um, so, so that's basically a central block of uh, culture done in video games. At the same time, while big multinational corporations have all of the control over these these spaces, these digital spaces, so there's at least a tension there because I think people need some some level of uh, control and some level of right to their uh, cultural and social spaces and to their cultural and social expressions so so that they can keep doing that and and that's that's always precarious right now so it, we see animal crossing is in the ownership of nintendo we know that games such as world of warcraft in are in the ownership of activision blizzard a highly contested publisher these days as well but what do we do? You, I think you rightfully said that these are important cultural spaces in which stories happen, experiences happen, friendships and social communities happen. But naturally, they are in the hand. Well, I'm saying that I'm saying naturally, but yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna make that point. I'm gonna stick with it. <laughs> naturally, they are in the hand of corporations because they are the ones who made it. Now, where's the problem in that? Where's the problem in that? Okay, I, I thought you were gonna ask what's what's the solution. But I'm I'm glad to pin to put a pin in that. What's the problem in that? Well, first of all, like I said, it's a little bit problematic if you have limited control over the spaces that you need to be connected to other people to express yourself. I think that should be a fundamental right to have a participation in culture and to have a participation in in um, in society. And, and nobody to be able to really take that away from you. Of course, the, the word natural um, is something uh, you just said to provoke me, but I would also um, doubt the thing that you said, that these corporations made that game. Because, yeah, the text of the law, basically, or, or the way that production of games functions, that's true, or at least that's the way that the system thinks it works but look at what happened in shooter games since since the late 90s or, or since doom actually if you look at um the progression of popular shooter games let's say we have fortnite which came became popular as a battle royale game uh, battle royale was popularized by pubg PUBG is a mod, something someone did as a hobby project of Armed Assault. Armed Assault is a tactic shooter. Tactic shooters uh, um, basically tra trace their lineage more or less back to Counter-Strike. Counter-Strike is a mod of Half-Life, something some people did as a hobby project on top of Half-Life. Half-Life is a story-heavy game. There it gets a little bit muddy. I'm, I'm going to say something wrong, but that shooters can tell stories is maybe something that guts its impulses from some doom mods. At every step of the of this uh, evolution, you get people sitting down as a hobby project, as a passion project, as their expression, as their uh, participation in culture. They just wanted to do something and they went ahead and did it. And then some big corporation did it and said, okay, that, that already works. Yeah. We don't have to do any um, research and development. 
we're just gonna make a nicer, prettier version of, of what already people did. So basically, the, the, the people are doing the same shit they did like 400 years ago and like playing around. They are playing with play. They are playing their games with games and uh, improving them, participating in culture and making their own traditions. And then the corporations come and uh, stake their claims and um, put a price tag on everything. So we got this, the corporations appropriating, let's say, uh, cultural knowledge or cultural history or cultural forms of play. Yes. Now I'm going to ask the question, what is the solution to that? <laughs> um, yeah, and and that's the point where, where every respectable academic or researcher should like uh, stop talking uh, and, and excuse himself. But I think definitely that gaming culture and play culture needs some new way of resistance, some new lines of defending what's basically already theirs. And I don't think it's a bad thing that we now have, and not only from the gamers, also from game studies people and from journalists, that we have this ideal image of like the full price boxed game as a work of art. That's a good thing. We should like keep that we could uh, we should try to pre preserve that also as an, as an idea but i think that also that there's there lies um liberty in these online games uh freedom in these online games uh, freedoms of expression and, and things like that that um people need to get their hands on or keep their hands on and i think we need some new ways and also some new fresh ideas on how people can participate in online culture and also then have control over their own participation and politically uh, influence that and, and have a say in the design of those things. That was Claudius Kluver, Game Studies Scholar and Research Fellow at the Institute of Media Studies at Philips University in Marburg. Thank you so very much again. And now we're going to move ahead and do some side questing. No, we are not, because this is a replay episode, and that's why I'm going to edit out the side quests at this point, because they were only relevant to the time in which we aired the episode. That's why I'm just going to say here, thank you so very much for listening. Thanks again to Claudius Kluver for the conversation. Feel free to submit your thoughts and questions on studyingpixels.com slash contact. And if you want to support us, then you know where to go. That's right, studyingpixels.com slash plus. See you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.